Abimelech uh, left the the town, or not Abimelech, Elimelech, sorry, Elimelech left the town of Bethlehem and went out to the land of Moab. And then Micah chapter 5, Bethlehem being the place of the prophecy of our Lord being born. And then today in John 6, where Jesus says he is the bread of life. And it's a little bit of a weird Christmas sermon, uh, because it has to do with this, this doctrine that makes many of us uncomfortable, and it's the doctrine of election or predestination. And so I'm going to read to us a portion of John chapter 6 today. This, this is right after Jesus has fed the 5,000, which, if you remember, it was 5,000 men besides the women and children. And so there were likely something like fifteen or 20,000 that he fed, or possibly more, because they did tend to have families of larger proportion than we do today. And so there were likely 20-plus thousand people on the mountainside who were fed by the fishes and loaves with the 12 baskets gathered up. And so it was an even bigger miracle than we tend to think of. And then Jesus walks on the water, and then the people are looking for him. Okay, So the people have figured out that he went across the sea. So this is John chapter 6. I'm going to start in verse 25. Um, When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to life which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me 
unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Let's pray. Father, we are at your mercy this morning to be led by your Spirit into the truth and goodness of your Word. We ask that you would feed us on it this morning. Amen. When you're young and you have a holiday like Christmas, do you remember what the prerequisite was to get your candy or your treat at the Christmas dinner? What? Be good. Be good, but also, but at the Christmas dinner, what did you have to do to get the dessert? You had to eat your food. <laughs> you had to eat your meat and your peas and your carrots, and, and then you got to eat the good stuff, the stuff you were really wanting to crave. Well, as much as I would like to say that we have all grown up a little bit since then, we tend to approach the Word of God in a similar sort of manner. Uh, that when we read the Scripture, wherever it's at, we're always just kind of looking for the dessert piece. right? We, we just want the candy at the end of the meal. And we don't want to spend much time chewing the meat and the peas and the carrots. Even though those are the things that actually help us grow and give us life. That if we had a constant sugary diet with nothing else that we would look like me. And, oh, sorry, wait. And <laughs> that's the way we look at Scripture, though. We, we want always to have the easy, the, the light, the fluffy, the dessert. And Jesus here um, says to the people who've had their fill of loaves and are coming to get fed again, he says, you, you didn't come to me because you saw this miraculous sign. You came to me because you're hungry. Like, you just want more food. You just want a dessert. You just want a prize. You want the the thing in the Cracker Jack box without having to eat the Cracker Jacks. You want the good things in life without anything else. And then he says, you can't have it unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. We didn't read that yet, but that's what he says to them. You must eat my flesh and drink my blood if you have an eternal life. I am the living bread. I have come down so that you might eat and live. And it's this very difficult thing for the people to wrap their heads around. Um, We tend to think that this doctrine of election, that no one can come to me unless the Father draws him, or further on the passage, verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh is no help at all. Or verse 65, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father that we tend to think that this doctrine of election has only become controversial in the last couple hundred years. That it just kind of landed somewhere and we've been fighting about it for 200 years. Well, the reality is that this doctrine has been argued about by the people of God since the beginning. And if you think about all the things we've talked about the last several weeks regarding the bread of life, it all has underneath it the sovereign plan of God that does not depend on anyone in the stories. So think of the manna in the desert. Did it depend on anyone on this earth? No. In fact, Jesus says, it wasn't Moses who fed you in the desert. It was my father who rained down that manna from heaven. That it wasn't because of anybody. But my sovereign father who was in heaven did something. And then think to Naomi and the famine that came upon Bethlehem, who brings famines on the earth? Scripture in multiple places says it is God 
who brings famines on this earth. Because think about it. Which of us, which of us has the power to make it rain? Which of us has the power to keep the wind at bay? Which of us has the power to make crops grow? None of us. We water and we feed and we fertilize, but there is a power beyond us that makes everything happen all the time. Or even the changing of the seasons. We take it for granted, but the changing of the seasons are not just the sovereignty of God, but the power of God and his promise. In Genesis 6, or Genesis 9, I guess, at the end of the flood, when the covenant of the rainbow is put in the sky, part of it is springtime and harvest will not cease. Because none of us, none of us can cause the tree to leaf, or to fruit, or to feed us. But all of it, all the time, everywhere around us, the sovereignty of God, the plan of God, the purpose of God, the eternal electing providence of God is at work. And without it, we would be utterly destitute. We would be without hope. Because we are powerless to do these things. If God didn't decide to make the plant grow, the plant would not grow. If God didn't decide for that amoxicillin to kill that bacteria for the infection in your body, no amount of amoxicillin would make a difference. It wouldn't matter. And we know this. We know this intuitively because sometimes, despite the fact that we've been given the chemotherapy that kills the cancer, we die anyway. Or take my own family, right? Mercy. She's four and a half. She was born with a genetic issue that causes the urine not to stay where it's supposed to, okay? She goes and she has a surgery that is 98% effective. She is the 2% it's not effective for. Who decided that? The doctor? Me? God decided that. God did that. God is always doing these things. Who decided that I would go to Butler and not Ball State? I decided. No, did I decide? Or did God put me at Butler for a reason? Well, if we believe in all things being done for the glory of God, then he put me there for a reason. Here's another way to think about it. This is in the book of Acts. This is Paul preaching um, to the people of Athens. And he says this. I should probably open my notebook here so I get the right verse. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So what's the underpinning truth here? That you're not the one who decides if you get up and live, but God. Every day, every moment, all the time. And he made, God made, from one man, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. Having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. That he put us here at an allotted time and put a boundary around where we were going to live. 
for a purpose, that we would seek him, that we would feed on his son Jesus, that we would look out for salvation. All of this, all of these underpinning truths. And then just think about this. A thousand years, 500 years before Jesus came, before he was born, this prophet named Micah and many other prophets before him. But Micah said, And you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too small to be among the clans of Judah, out of you will come one that will be my king. How absolutely certain was it that that would happen? It was 100% certain. It could be no other way. There could be no falter in the plan. And it had to happen at this time in this way. So that all these different prophecies, of which there are about 250 in the Old Testament about Jesus, would come absolutely true. Think of it this way, too. At the end of Jesus' life, when he's hanging on the cross, and the men next to him have their legs broken so that they will die, and Jesus does not have his legs broken. That's prophesied in Scripture. Not one of my bones will be broken. How certain was it that the club that broke the men's feet next to him would not strike the Savior? 100% certain. All things. And then, Romans chapter 8. And we know that for those who love God, so love God, those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. I've spoken of it before, but this little two words, all things, is an absolutely mind-boggling statement. It's mind-boggling. Because God doesn't here say, some things will work together for good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. It doesn't say most things. It doesn't say the things that you understand to have been done for you. It doesn't say the stuff that you figured out worked together for your good. It says all things work together for good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Now, the only way that everything could work together for your good is that it was planned to work together for your good. You can't accidentally have something work together for your good. It has to be made that way, not turned that way. This is the sovereign hand of God in all things from all time until this moment right now. If you're called according to his purpose, if you love God, here, now, right this second, this thing for your good. The chair you're sitting on for your good. The heat on the building that we're in for your good. The building itself for your good. The car you drove for your good. The tire you use on your car that was made in Taiwan for your good. 
That's a mind-boggling set of things that we cannot possibly fathom the end of it. We can't even begin because think about just the most innocuous thing that could possibly be done on the face of this planet. You step on a pebble. Okay? And God says all things work together for your good. And you'll immediately go, well, if you step on the pebble, you'll fall and then the bird won't poop on you. No, I'm not talking about that sort of exactitude of us figuring it out. I just mean what had to happen for the pebble to get there? God created the world in six days. Which means that pebble has existed since the beginning until the moment you stepped on it. I have no idea why you stepped on it. I am not God. I have not the mind of God. And to think about why you stepped on the pebble this way and not that way is too much for us to understand. But know this, every single thing was aiming for that moment, for your good, for my good, every moment. Now back to John 6. Back to the fact that we have an unbelievable plan from the beginning of all things, before the beginning of all things, that Jesus, the bread of life, would be born in Bethlehem of Judea. And that one day he would stand on a mountainside and there would be a boy with fishes and loaves. And then he would feed the thousands. And there would be 12 baskets left over. And then afterwards, when the people came to him, they would be seeking not the signs so that they could believe, but the food so that their bellies could be filled. And then this unbelievable thing happens afterwards. This really mind-boggling thing. Because in our day and age especially, in the last 50 years in America, um, we have built this thing called the attractional church. And the attractional church says, if anyone ever leaves, you have failed. If anyone doesn't stick around, you did wrong. And if you don't think that's the pressure that's put on every church in America, I can assure you it is. Most people, when they visit, are looking for something to fill their bellies. And if they don't find it, they go elsewhere. It might be a youth group. It might be small groups. It might be a Bible study. It might be this. It might be that. It might be whatever it is. Whatever their thing is that they say, if you do this, you've performed the sign, you've filled my belly, and I will stick around. And Jesus says, listen, the whole thing isn't about filling your bellies. It's about me. It's about Jesus. It's about Christ, the bread of life. And then he does this this anti-attractional method. So in verse 41 it says, So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they were mad about what Jesus had done. And then Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Like the reason that nobody's coming to me even though I just told them what they need to inherit the eternal life, is because the Father is not drawing them. 
Verse 45, it's written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. Did he just change the subject, or am I imagining things? You came for loaves, not for me. I'm the bread of life. Eat me and live. Your fathers died. Now, if you want to make a plan to wreck a church, talk about death a whole lot. Just bring it up at any point. Nobody wants to hear that they're going to die. Nobody. Now, death comes for everybody. It's not a, it's a ruthless enemy, okay? And it is an enemy. It was not from the beginning. It came after the fall, and it was punishment, a curse, a thing that must be put to death itself. And Jesus will eventually, one day, crush death. But until that day, it comes. And so, Jesus says, all right, you're coming here for the loaves, and you don't want the bread of life. You won't believe. But listen to me. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, this thing that you think was so wonderful, this miracle that you think you want, and they all died in the wilderness. What does he mean? Remember, I mentioned this when, when I preached on it, but when the people went into the promised land, or were on the edge of the promised land, they sent the 12 spies in, Okay. Ten of those spies came back and said, listen, the people in this land are giants. They will consume us. We're like grasshoppers. We can't do it. And then two of them, Joshua and Caleb, said, the Lord is with us. We can go. He said he's given us the promised land. Let's go take it. And the people said, we're with the ten. There ain't no way we're going to take these guys. They're huge. They'll consume us. And so God says, because your lack of faith... No man over the age of 20 who is in your assembly will enter the promised land. And for the next 40 years, they all died. Every single man, 20 and up, in the desert, save Caleb and Joshua, died without entering the promised land, including Moses, who was buried by God in the mountains. So when he says this, He's not just saying everybody dies. He's saying, if you die without me, you die without the promised land. Just like your fathers did in the desert. This is the thing we're talking about. Not whether you can get a loaf of bread from me, but if you eat from me, you will live. And if you don't, you will die in the wilderness. So he's talking about the curse. The real curse. Heaven and hell. Life and death. The hereafter. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that no one may eat of it and not so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews again disputed among themselves saying, "How can this man, man give us his flesh to eat?" So Jesus said to them, "Truly truly I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. 
Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? What if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Jesus took this anti-attractional church method and applied it to thousands on the mountainside. And the very next verse says, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve. So the implication is, however many thousands came, they all left but the twelve. Feeding of the 5,000, big win in the attractional church world. They come to him and Jesus hands down the hardest doctrine in the history of mankind, the doctrine of election. He says, eat this and you will live. Eat this and you will live. Eat this and you will live. No one can come to me. No one can come to me. No one can come to me. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. The doctrine of election, of predestination, is not an easy doctrine. It's not a doctrine that comes to you easily. It's one you have to be forced to eat, just like a child has to be forced to eat his peas and carrots to get his dessert at Christmas dinner. But it is there, and it is food that is nourishing to our souls. And here is one of the ways that it nourishes our souls. Back in Romans chapter 9, right after he's talked about this predestining grace of God that justifies and saves. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. 
Why does he have unceasing anguish for his kinsmen? Because they have rejected God and they are not elect. And he is grieved over that truth. The doctrine of election is a difficult doctrine. But it's true and it's good for us. And one of the ways it's good for us is it actually makes us look out onto the world that's unbelieving and actually have a heart of anguish over the fact that they may not see God. When we think of things that affect us in this world, the hard things almost always affect us the most. The accident, the unforeseen death, The Philippines right now and the typhoon that they're suffering through, unforeseen, right? No one two weeks ago knew that was coming. This doctrine awakes us to the fact that we are always at the mercy of a God who made all things. That we don't own salvation any more than the next person. And that those people whom we love who don't know Christ. Are we grieved for them? And those people who we don't know, who are outside of Christ, are we grieved for them? Unceasing anguish for them. The doctrine of election is one that is grounded in grief. It's a great joy, this doctrine. But if you come at it from this, I'm the chosen kind of idea. It will do you no good. You'll become an arrogant fool, just like the Pharisees, and you'll think you deserve the fishes and the loaves. But if you come at election like a humble man, like a humble woman, who says, undeserved, unknown, unforeseen, how could this be me? You will have a doctrine of election that doesn't say, look at me, but look at him. He is the bread of life. Go and eat. The final thing I want to say about this is, you'll notice here in this passage, it's in here four or five times, this doctrine of election. No one can come to the Father. No one can come to me unless the Father himself draws him. And then about the same number of times, Jesus says things like, Come and eat. Come and eat. Drink my blood. Eat my flesh. Believe. And all over Scripture, God joins these doctrines together. Without any apology, without any mention of the difficulties of trying to put these together in our head. In fact, the beginning of the Gospel of John, verse 12 and 13 say this. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And then the very next verse. In fact, it's not even a new verse. It's the same sentence. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood. So you you didn't become a child of God because you were born in the right family. 
nor of the will of flesh. So, not your own will. You didn't, you didn't conjure this up. Nor of the will of man. So, it wasn't a group effort. It wasn't the church that saved you. So, you were not born of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And then, easily the most famous passage in all of Scripture, John 3.16 In his discussion with Nicodemus, he says this, That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it goes. You don't know how it happens. And think of, finally, the whole example of the new birth. You must be born again. The implication is be born again. Do it. Be born. And yet, think of what birth is. Think of the child who was born. Did the child have anything to do with what happened to it? At all? No. It did not choose for its parents to do the thing that is necessary, right? It didn't have anything to do with the nine months in the womb of how God knit together its soul and its body. It didn't have to do with the time or the moment that God chose to open the womb of his mother. That child was utterly, totally dependent on the will of God. And the mother, likewise. And the father, likewise. Think of it. Everything relating to birth in human terms is a complete, total mystery when it finally comes down to it. Yes, we know sperm and egg and you know, the combining of the halves of 40, you know, 23 chromosomes combined to make 46 chromosomes, and then it starts this cell division, mitosis, and you know, divides and divides and divides, and then it starts cell differentiation. We know all this. Nobody but God can do these sorts of things. Every single moment of natural birth is utterly dependent on the sovereignty of God, without which there would be no children, ever. Because it's not just the act that has to happen. Other things have to happen during the act that you can't control, that are internal, that nobody sees but God. And then, sperm and egg, implantation, nine months later, a baby is born. Whose will was involved there? Whose will? The mother's? The father's? Nope. We could desire to have children or not desire to have children, but it is God alone who decides if we're going to have children. We could have all kinds of things we do to try to have children if we're unable. We could go through all sorts of, you know, do this, try this, try that, try this. And in the end, it's still God who decides if it's going to work or not. And then it is God who decides if that baby grows and thrives in the womb or doesn't. Or like our child Hope, who never saw the light of day as as an alive person. We did not choose that. We did not do that. That was God in his sovereignty. His electing providence. Providence. 
This is our good doctrine, which preserves life, both physical and spiritual. And so finally, my last point, I promise. We have... Prayer, prayer, which is the mark of the Christian. And you cannot, you cannot, it's impossible to do, you cannot pray without depending on God's sovereign plan. Because every prayer you utter is for God to do something, not you. God save my son. Not, you can't, you can't even figure out how to make words that are not dependent on the electing, sovereign God. You can't do it. There'd be no point in uttering, God, save my son by having him have a will that could choose you in the day. Even then, it's still God having to give him the will to do the thing. You can't utter a prayer as a Christian that is not utterly dependent on the sovereignty of God. God gives safe birth to my child. That's a sovereign God. God, keep us safe on the road. That's a sovereign God. God, keep the alarm bells from going off this morning. That's a sovereign God. Some small prayers, some big prayers, some uncalculably impossible things that we depend upon God, but all of them, all of them dependent on God's electing kindness. So why am I preaching this at Christmas? Why is this the, the, Sunday, the last Sunday of Advent? Because on Christmas Eve, I hope to preach a sermon that is candy. That is sweet. That is a delight. But I want us to have a good meal first. I want us to know that the Word of God is full of meat and fruits, and vegetables, and desserts, and that all of it, every single bit of it, is for us. And one of the most difficult things in the world is to eat the flesh of Christ and to drink his blood. It's a, it's a sovereign election, and it's an impossible thing unless we are dependent upon God. And so this week, we're celebrating the birth of the Savior. And you all have family and friends who don't know him. I have family and friends who don't know him. And so as we go into the celebration of Christmas, the advent of the Son of God into this world, pray this week that he will open the eyes of the blind and he will make lame feet walk and that they will skip and run and jump into the arms of the Savior. And do all you can to make that true. Tell your family and friends about the birth of the wonderful Savior and tell them, come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Come and welcome. All right. Let's stand this morning. I'm going to pray and then we'll we'll sing our final hymn. Father, you've given to us many, many things to eat and to have life in your word. And Father, we pray that these truths that your son talked about that are so difficult,